Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Trinity, Mystery, and Mercy. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May 31st, 2015. Among Western churches, both Protestant and Catholic, the first Sunday after Pentecost is Trinity Sunday. It's a day when we honor the triune nature of the one true God. It's also a day when we can get lost in the worst sort of theological abstractions. Many liturgies this Sunday will include the Athanasian Creed from the 6th century that, quote, we worship one God in Trinity, in Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. We don't know who wrote the Athanasian Creed, but it makes some important affirmations and denials. First, Christians affirm the unity and co-equality of the Godhead. We worship not only the Father, but also the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we also deny two things. First, we deny tritheism, that we worship three gods. And secondly, we deny subordinationism, that the Son or the Spirit is subordinate to the Father. But interestingly enough, whereas the Western Church affirms the Athanasian Creed, it has never enjoyed widespread use in Eastern Orthodoxy. This is a bit strange because Eastern theologians like the Cappadocian Fathers of the 4th century, Basil the Great of Caesarea, his brother Gregory of Nyssa, and their friend and bishop of Constantinople, Gregory Nazianzus, all made major contributions to the doctrine of the Trinity. When Eastern Orthodox believers celebrate the Trinity, they start in a different place than their Western cousins. And it's a good place to start when we worship God. Western theology tends towards intellectual abstraction. Eastern theology emphasizes adoration of the mystery. It has always been wary of the inadequacies of human language, the limitations of the human mind, and the infinity of God. From the 4th century, the desert father and intellectual Evagrius, <coughs> who spent the last 16 years of his life among unlettered Coptic peasants in the harsh Egyptian desert, once observed, God cannot be grasped by the mind. If he could be grasped, he would not be God. And from the 8th century, similarly, the Syrian monk and bishop John of Damascus wrote in his exposition of the Christian faith, It is plain, then, that there is a God, but what he is in his essence and nature is absolutely incomprehensible and unknowable. God, then, is infinite and incomprehensible and all that is comprehensible about him is his incomprehensibility. 
Both of, the, both of the Old Testament readings this week emphasize God's transcendence. Isaiah had a vision. The psalmist heard a voice. Isaiah 6, we see the prophet feared death when he saw the holy God high and exalted. The seraphs covered their faces. Earthquakes shook the foundation and thick smoke filled the temple. Woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord the Almighty. And then Psalm 29, which mentions the voice of the Lord seven times. And what is this voice? God's voice thunders over mighty waters splits the cedars, twists the oak trees, and rips the bark off of trees. The psalmist compares God's voice to a bolt of lightning. And so all of our thoughts about God, and even our prayers to God, live with these limits. A poem by C.S. Lewis captures the practical implications of God's transcendence. It's called Footnote to All Prayers. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. When I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, in dream of Phidian fancies and embrace in heart, symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always, taken at their world, taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows aimed unskillfully beyond desert. And all men are idolaters crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. So take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor translate. But God's radical transcendence is only part of what we celebrate on Trinity Sunday. God is infinite, but both the gospel and the epistle remind us that he's also intimate and intimate. Paul contrasts two ways of relating to God in Romans 8. We shouldn't relate to God as a slave who fears a master, but as a child who feels safe with a father. Abba, father. Abba is the Aramaic word used by Jesus that means something like Papa. The word is used only three times in the Greek New Testament and conveys a shocking sense of human intimacy with the divine infinite. It's a word that little children first learning to speak use for their father and that Jesus himself used to speak to God in Mark 14:36. During the four years that my family lived in Moscow, 1991 to 95, 
we would take the overnight train to St. Petersburg. There, we could visit the magnificent Hermitage Museum, which houses Rembrandt's Prodigal Son from 1666. The painting is enormous and full of deep, dark reds and browns. In it, the stooping father embraces his kneeling son with compassion, tenderness, and without any questions about his many failings. And that's what God is like, a tender father. God is also like a nurturing mother. That's how, God, that's how Paul Young pictures God in his 2007 novel, The Shack. The book was rejected by 26 publishers, and so, at first, Young self-published it. Later, it was lampooned by many self-appointed and self-important theological gatekeepers. And guess what? Today, there are 10 million copies of The Shack in print, a sure sign that the book speaks very powerfully to many readers. For Young, the shack is a metaphor for your place of shame, the icon of your deepest pain, or the place of your nightmares. In an interview, Young describes the shack as the place we build to hide all our crap. The novel begins with a mysterious note from God who invites Mac, the main character, back to the shack. And so the shack is also place of healing, for the intimate and tender God always meets us in the middle of our mess. What Jung has really written, and his critics are right about this point, is really a doctrine of God in story form. But it's no Athanasian creed with technical abstractions. He pictures the Trinitarian God who welcomes us back to the shack as El Uzia, a large, beaming African-American woman, the father, and then a small, distinctively Asian woman named Sarayu, who collects tears, the spirit, and a Middle Eastern man dressed like a laborer, Jesus the Son. Mac discovers that God isn't like he thought. He's not the product of his projections or the neat formulas of academic theology. He's perfectly good. He intends to heal and not humiliate us. Mac learns to trust him fully and to believe that God is near. That's the good news on Trinity Sunday. And for further reflection, I like how Bartholomew I, the ecumenical patriarch and spiritual leader over all the Eastern Orthodox churches, captures both God's transcendence and his imminence from his book, Encountering the Mystery. Listen to Bartholomew I. God as unknowable and yet as profoundly known. God is invisible, and yet as personally accessible. God as distant, and yet as intensely present. 
The infinite God thus becomes truly intimate in relating to the world. For books this week, I review a title by Sherwin Newland. It's called The Art of Aging, a doctor's prescription for well-being. New York Random House, 2007, 302 pages. We're often told, act your age. But what does that mean as you grow older? There's a thin line between denial and delusion on the one hand, trying too hard against all the odds, and, on the other hand, not trying at all. On the one hand, we all feel the effects of aging, but on the other hand, it can be hard to admit the inevitable. There's also a big difference between living long and living well. Somehow, it seems like life goes on and on and nothing much ever happens. And then one day you wake up and everything has changed. Sherwin Newland is a clinical professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. His book draws upon his personal experiences of aging, his 40 years as a surgeon and scientist, and some good old storytelling about what he has learned from others. Aging is both a science and an art. The scientific aspects might be the easiest part. By now, we're familiar with the importance of a healthy diet, regular exercise, genetic good luck, intellectual stimulation, and social connections. But Newland pushes further to explore the intangibles like one's attitudes, dispositions, and religious faith. As he says at the end of the book, it's not just about eating granola. Cultivating equanimity over entitlement, contentment over complaining, or determination over discouragement are only three examples of the spiritual art of true wisdom. Body mind, and soul are all important. Aging brings both gains and losses. Cultivating the wisdom to separate fact and fantasy is huge, as is learning to live with uncertainty and adversity. One of the biggest lessons of aging, says Newland, is that choice exists for each one of us. In other words, aging is not a disease. It's a natural condition of every life. And if it is handled wisely and well, it really is true that there's more sugar at the bottom of the cup. On the subject of aging well, I highly recommend the book Reviewed at Journey with Jesus by Atul Gawande. It's called Being Mortal. Once again, Sherwin Newland, The Art of Aging. For movies this week, we go to the Wild West in a movie called The Homesman, 2014. Tommy Lee Jones produced, wrote, 
directed and starred in this unconventional western about three women who go mad in the Nebraska Territory on the American frontier. Life gave them more than they could bear, says the Reverend, and when you see their hard lives in that harsh landscape, you understand what he means. The women need what was called a homesman to take them back east to Iowa. Only in this tale, that man is a fourth woman. The bossy, young, uncommonly alone spinster named Mary B. Cuddy, played by Hilary Swank. Cuddy hires the smack-talking vagrant George Briggs, played by Tommy Lee Jones, to help her. And off they set on the five-week trek across the treeless, wind-whipped prairie. They reach their destination, the wife of the Methodist minister, played by Meryl Streep. But this film is all about the journey across a piece of American history. Once again from 2014, The Homesman. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Juliana of Norwich. She lived from 1342 to 1416. This piece of poetry is from her book, Revelations of Divine Love. It speaks of God's love for us. The love of God most high for our soul is so wonderful that it surpasses all knowledge. No created being can fully know the greatness, the sweetness, the tenderness of the love that our Maker has for us. By His grace and help, therefore, let us in spirit stand in awe and gaze, eternally marveling at the supreme, surpassing, single-minded, incalculable love that God, who is all goodness, has for us. Juliana of Norwich. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 31st, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.